So um, I'll grab that whiteboard whilst I'm chatting to you here. Um, last week we, um, we looked at Mary and Martha and uh, the reason we looked at that was because that was pretty much the next uh, section in Luke's gospel. And uh, it gave us an opportunity to look at a broader narrative of their lives together. And uh, I know lots of you have been discussing that particular story and some of the implications of that story for your own life in your house churches and around the kitchen table. Uh, lots of you have asked uh, for the recording and of course, we don't have it. There's something went wrong last week. The prince of the power of the air, um, who obviously is involved in technology as well, somehow intervened and stopped us recording uh, last week's message. So here's the solution. I, when I came to uh, Apex, had various movement responsibilities in this nation and around the world. And it just so happens that next week I have to go with Sally over to California, um, where I believe it's a bit warmer than it is here, just for a couple of days. And um, I was trying to think about what it was that I was gonna speak about to the group of leaders there. And it just so happened the Lord has now led me to preach about Martha and Mary. And uh, we're gonna get that recording and we're gonna put it back on the Apex uh, um, website. So we should be able to get that for you and you'll all be able to um, hopefully benefit from that. And you can pray that it's the same sermon because you never know with me. <laughs> so this week... Where are we? Well, we're at Luke chapter 11, and unlike other portions of Luke's gospel, we have a kind of narrative beginning to the chapter, and then really we have thematic teaching by Jesus on a single subject, and the single subject is prayer. And that, that single subject of prayer, Jesus addresses from a number of different perspectives. First of all, he offers us the pattern of prayer. It's an interesting thing that what we'll read here in a moment in Luke's gospel bears great resemblance to what we'll find if we look in Matthew's gospel also. When we look in Matthew's gospel and the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see much of the same teaching. And of course, Matthew is recording Jesus' teaching at the beginning of the work that Jesus did with his disciples in Galilee. Jesus has now pretty much left Galilee and the ministry and the mission there. He has gone through this retreat time with his disciples. He's gone up to the Mount of Transfiguration. You'll remember we looked at that together. He has met with Elijah and Moses and they've discussed his plans for what is going to happen in Jerusalem and they've heard the voice of the Father from the glowing cloud of the Holy Spirit saying, this is my son. Reaffirming the, the same words that, that were spoken over Jesus at the beginning of his ministry as he went into Galilee. And so at this midpoint, as Jesus goes towards the, the Judea and, uh, and Jerusalem and the, and the second phase of his ministry, Jesus, as it were, reiterates much of the early teaching and it's as though he's setting the stage again. And so he gives us 
the same pattern in prayer. And he helps us to understand our posture in prayer. What's our posture towards God? What's our stance towards the Father as we come and make our petition? How should we approach him? He gives us some some understanding about the, the need for persistence in prayer. And uh, we'll mention that briefly today, but when we get to chapter 18 in Luke, we'll spend a bit more time looking at the, the whole role of persistence. But then, finally, Jesus helps us to understand our position before God. So that is the outline that Jesus is is speaking to as he answers a simple question from his disciples. And the simple question is articulated right at the very beginning of our passage that we're going to read together today. Let's look at it. It looks like my iPad has frozen which is not the best thing to have happened. Uh, we'll see if we can, uh, I don't know. It doesn't really want to do anything. Let's have a look here. Is that uh, Prince of the Power of the Air again? Uh, is the recording working up there, Andrew? Yeah, it doesn't want to do it. Um, I may have to, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll turn this off like that. And I'll give that to Sally. And I'll get a Bible of somebody else. Has somebody got an NIV available? Yes. I got an NIV? Yes. God bless you for that. Thank you. Ooh, wow, you've got great eyesight. <laughs> Thank you very much, Christine. I know, I know you've um, memorized it, so we're good. So let's, um, let's look at, um, what are you going to do? Large print. Large oh, <laughs> God bless you. Even, ooh, even better. Hang on, then you can read that one, yeah. Uh, yeah. Any advance on um, 24 point? Okay, here we go. Oh, marvelous, I can see this. Good night. You do quite a good, uh, you do quite a good workout just holding it. So here we go, Luke chapter 11 and verse one. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, 
Though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's shameless audacity, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you can just hand me that and I'll see if it'll work again. Is what, Bob? You switch it off, yeah. Very good. So here's Jesus. He is being asked by his disciples about prayer. And the reason that they're asking him about prayer is because they're observing him pray. Isn't that fascinating? It's quite a surprising and maybe even shocking thing that there was something about the way in which Jesus prayed that caused the disciples to want to pray like Jesus. They'd already been trained. They'd already been regularly invited into his life of prayer, and yet on this occasion, they were able to watch him, they were able to listen to him, and in watching and listening, they were prompted. They were, they were prompted with a desire, a longing to pray like Jesus. Tremendously important that we begin there. There's some Interesting and important things for us to note. First of all, Jesus prayed out loud. Most of us pray silently. Jesus prayed out loud. It was the common thing then, as it is now in the Jewish community, for people to pray out loud. There is a reason why it's called the wailing wall. It's not the wall of silence, as it would be if it were found somewhere in America, it's the Wailing Wall. It's a wall on the western side of Temple Mount where people have been praying for centuries and you can hear them pray. When Jesus prayed, he was praying out loud, not because he was an extrovert, but because that was just the simple pattern of his life. And I think that there's something important about this. It's not, of course, necessary for us to always be praying out loud. But there's something important about this for us as parents, for us as friends uh, to one another, for us to be disciples walking alongside one another. We need to give access to those around us to the relationship that we have with God the Father. More than anything else, in the lives of our children, Sally and I would say it is access to our relationship with God that gives those children the opportunity to follow, gives the children the opportunity to emulate, gives the children the opportunity to desire what it is that we have. 
So Jesus is praying and the disciples ask. And Jesus goes back to just the simple pattern. Now, the words aren't identical, but the pattern and the structure is the same. Jesus, when he gives us a teaching, an instruction about prayer, keeps it very simple and keeps it in a way that anyone can embrace and receive it. How many times have we written, or maybe not written, but read books that give us the 14 different ways to pray? And you get through to you know, the ninth way and you think, now what was the first one again? When Jesus is asked about prayer, he just gives the same answer. This is how you pray. You pray to your Father using familiar and intimate language. You pray to him and ask him that the things that he is concerned with as king of the universe would be revealed in your daily experience. You pray that his kingship, he is after all your father, but, but you want your father who you know to be king of the universe, you want his kingship to be revealed in your daily experience. And as part of that, you want to rest and rely upon his capacity as father to provide for you. And so you pray with unbridled prayers for what it is that you need. You pray for your daily bread. Having, having made that connection with your Father God in intimate and personal language and recognise that there are things that he wants to do in you and through you and around you and having asked him for the particular things that you need in your life, then you deal with the relationships that you have with other human beings. The first relationship, of course, is the relationship with the Father. The second relationship is the relationship with those in the world around you. And the principal obstacle to relationships with the people around us is the obstacle of bitterness and unforgiveness. We ask God to forgive us as we are forgiving those who have done, are doing, and will do all kinds of different things. Now, it's an interesting one, this one, because you know, we're, we're all pretty much in the same boat about this. We all tend to hold grudges. We all tend to remember wounds. We all tend to live lives that are in some way marked by the realities of unforgiveness. And it's very hard for us not to be because pain always prompts a response. And where we still feel pain, the response is to look for the reason for the pain and to find a way to mitigate the effects of that pain. And so often, the way that we do that is to blame the people who we believe inflicted that pain upon us. It's something that we all do. And of course, it's something that will cloud our hearts, darken our minds, 
and close us off from an intimate relationship with our Father. Jesus, when he's teaching the same teaching in Matthew, you'll remember, says, and if you don't forgive others, your Father won't forgive you. It's, it's impossible because he can't make the connection with a heart that is closed by unforgiveness. I've noticed that forgiveness towards other people is pretty much like a box of Kleenex. You know, you got dropped on your head as a baby and you remember it and you blame your parents or something. And you say, you know, they're terrible people and you know, oh God, forgive them, Lord. You know, forgive them. And then the box and you get another one and you think, oh, okay. Well, I better do it again, I guess. Next time I think of them, there it is. And you, you say, okay, Lord, I forget. And there's still another one. And here's the thing. You've got to keep on doing it until that box is empty. You don't have to do it right there and then at that moment. It's just a reality that these wounds often are much deeper than we ever imagined. And we have to return to them from time to time. And you'll know in your heart You'll know in your heart whether you are liberated from all of that unforgiveness. There are so many people that I've held grudges against in my life and have held unforgiveness towards. And as I've gone through the discipline, using the pattern prayer of Jesus of asking God for forgiveness as I forgive those who have sinned against me, there comes a moment when I no longer need to forgive the others because I no longer feel the offense that they've given. And I can tell by the sagely nods of the older members of the congregation that they've got there too from time to time. Keep doing it until it's done. So here's the pattern prayer. We focus on our relationship, our intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. In prayer, we recognize the relationships that we have one with another. And then we think about the world beyond our immediate relationships. We ask God to lead us into that world, but lead us and protect us on the way. I think it was... um, I think it was Augustine who said, even though it doesn't mention the evil one in this pattern of prayer in Luke as it does in Matthew, of course, temptation only comes from one place. And so when Jesus says, say to the Father, lead us not into temptation, basically what he's saying is exactly what he said in Matthew. He's saying, lead us out into a world and protect us from the agency of the enemy within the world so that we can walk in freedom and in liberty, being able to bring the kindness of the kingdom and the blessing of our Father to others. So there's, there's the pattern prayer. And you might say that there is just a particular shape to it. And that shape as I've 
indicated on numerous occasions before is up, in, and out. But there's something more, isn't there? There is a posture in prayer. I I do hope I can get to some of my cross-references here. It's funny, isn't it, how the the thing just kind of collapses on you just at the wrong moment. I've been looking at it all week, and there it is. Here is a story, a parable. Now, parables, I've said this in little groups and um, when we've been together as staff and, and various other things, but, but a parable always has the same basic guiding principle behind it. And you can ask three questions of a parable. So here's the parable. The parable is, there's a man in the middle of the night, a friend comes on a journey, he's obviously reached his house much later than he expected. Maybe he's had a flat camel along the way. I don't know. But, but he, gets to, he gets to his friend's house in the middle of the night, and of course, he and those who are accompanying, accompanying him along the journey are hungry as well as being tired. And so the man whose house this friend has arrived at goes to a neighbor and asks for three loaves of bread. And the friend says, well, I've locked up the house and the kids are all in bed and I'm in bed and I mean, I, I can't get up. And Jesus says, even though he won't get up because he's a friend. Now, it's different translations in, in different Bibles. I don't know what was up on the screen. Was it shameless audacity or was it boldness? Was it shameless audacity? The newer translations are really good sometimes at, um, at finding a way of articulating the Greek words. In the old version, the King James Version, the word is importunity, which of course is a word that people use every day. (laughs) You often say to your children, well, your importunity has convinced me this morning of what it is that I need to do today, children. (laughs) You use importunity all the time. Um, Nobody knows what importunity means. It means shameless audacity. Boldness is a little bit anemic because it sounds like it sounds like it's a kind of rather flat experience shameless audacity and of course what Jesus is doing here is he is doing a thing that the rabbis often did by by demonstrating a truth about God by lifting up something that is true of us, even though it wouldn't necessarily be the thing that you're looking at in the behavior of a person that would be applied to God. God would not reject you as a friend. A friend might reject you as a friend, but God wouldn't do that. It's a kind of interesting argumentation style that was very common in the world of Jesus and in the world of the rabbis. But the most important thing, rather than the style of the argumentation, is what it is that Jesus says. He says, shamelessness in prayer is what's needed. Wow. If only that were true of all of our lives. 
I told you about my grandkids and papa's present. Christmas Eve, we find a toy shop. We go in and I simply say, you can have anything. I don't care what it is. Now, I'm not going to do it when they're teenagers. But, <laughs> but, you know, they're just little kids. And so they come and they show me some tiny little puppy called Marshall or something. I don't know what it's called. You've all seen these things, haven't you all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and I'll say, well, you know, I could probably run to $3 if you want. And so they, they go and find something a bit bigger and they, they come back. And they think it's the most fun possible. Well, shameless audacity with children is just a, a common reality. So we're, we're getting ready, you know, some days after after Christmas and the parents are talking, the adults are talking, they say, oh, we're just going to pop into Target, which is where we did the shopping for the toys. And you could see the little ones kind of, Target, Target. And Penny says, can I go to Target? We said, sure. Okay, so she's obviously got something going on in her mind. And, I, and I'm, I'm beginning to guess what it might be. So we get her in her car seat and we're driving up to Target. She says, Papa, are we going to get another present? Now, of course, what you need to do is to shame the child so that they never do that again. How often that has been the case, I'm sure, in many of our lives. But of course, we don't do that with our grandchildren. We just think it's fun that they think that it's okay to ask. I wonder what baggage you and I carry to the throne of the Father that prevents us from asking shamelessly. I can't tell you the number of times that people have said to me, well, I'm sure that God's got other people that are more important than me. I'm sure there are much more important concerns than the concerns that I could bring to him. I've had many, many people who've said to me, I don't deserve what it is that I'm asking God for. Of course you don't. How could you possibly deserve it? And yet, Jesus says, our posture is shameless audacity. Turn to your neighbor and say, shameless audacity. And that means, that means you can ask God for anything. Anything. It's entirely okay. Now, are you going to get anything? I don't know. I doubt it. I doubt it. But it's entirely okay. Because it's a relationship between a child and a parent. And the parent is so much better than we are. Jesus then goes into a little bit of teaching about persistence. And the word that we use in English doesn't quite capture it because it's, 
it's written in the perfect tense. In other words, the way that Jesus first said it was this. He said, what you need to be doing is askingly ask, seekingly seek, knockingly knock. It needs to be a continuous process. And so shamelessness is not just the beginning, it is the continuation. We're to continue to ask, we're to continue to seek, we're to continue to knock. Now, when we get to chapter 18 and we look at this whole subject of persistence in prayer, we'll perhaps think a little more about how we can learn from particular groups of people. It's amazing to me that there are certain places in the world where I've been privileged either to visit or be among people who are expatriates here in this nation or in other nations that I've visited that have specific cultural groups. I've noticed amongst Africans that they really know how to persist in prayer. I remember the first time an African said to me, when are we having an all-night of prayer? I nearly passed out just at the thought of it. I said, well, I, I don't know. What, 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 do you, what do you think we need? And he said, well, you know, it would be a good thing to kind of persist in prayer, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. When you say all night, I mean, what are you thinking? Are you thinking kind of, you know, metaphorically? Of course not. And so he said, well, I tell you what, why don't we just train you and we'll do a half night of prayer first. And then we'll kind of get to midnight and then you can go home and, and then we'll kind of build up the muscles in prayer and we'll be able to do it the whole time. Great. So that's what we used to do. It's great. And the Koreans, they're amazing in prayer. They know how to persist in prayer. You persist in prayer because you believe not that you're twisting the arm of God, but that there's nothing better to do than to talk to your heavenly father about the needs that you and the world might have. What could you, what could you better do than that? Do you see what I mean? Such an important perspective. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that knocking and seeking, I mean, excuse me, asking and seeking lead to knocking. It's almost as though we ask God, and in asking God, we've got our eyes open for what it is that God might be doing that we're asking him about, because we're asking and then we're seeking. So let's think about Alpha. Maybe you're asking that God will open the heart of some of your friends to accept the invitation. And so you ask God for that. But then you keep your eyes open for the indication that what it is that you're praying for is actually happening and you seek it in your daily experience. And then when you see it, the asking and the seeking converge and that's the moment that you knock and you say, how about coming on Tuesday evening to Alpha? Do you see what I mean? Prayer is something that is directed to the Father, but is something that is revealed in our daily experience. And so with that shameless audacity, 
we choose to persist. And then finally, look what Jesus says at the end of his teaching. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now people have sometimes asked me, they say, what's the deal about snakes and scorpions? It's a funny kind of combination. Well, of course, what we do with this is we think ourselves into what it was like to be the first disciples, because disciples now and disciples then are identical. We're all supposed to follow Jesus, we're all supposed to listen to Jesus, and we're all supposed to answer the two main questions of a disciple's life, which is, what is Jesus saying to me and what am I going to do about it? Those are the two big questions. And so when we are there and we place ourselves in this circumstance and we, we're there with the disciples who are hanging on the words of Jesus because we just watched Jesus pray and we think, wow, I'd love to be able to do that. I don't know what it is that he's doing, but it's nothing like the way that I pray and so I really want to get in. And so we've asked him and he's given us this story and he's given us these, these encouragements and these challenges and these exhortations and we're listening to him and then he says, which of you fathers whose son asks for bread or asks for fish, asks for an egg, gives him a snake or a scorpion. When did, I'm sure Jesus said something about this recently. Well, of course, you go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 19, and the 72 disciples have just returned from their mission, remember? We've just stepped into the second phase of the mission of Jesus. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's going into Judea and he sent the 72 ahead of him just in the same way that he sent the 12 back to Galilee to kind of do a sweeping up operation before he moves on. He sent the 72 disciples ahead of him and they all come back and they're so excited. They're saying even the Spirit's Obey us in your name. And Jesus says, yeah, I I saw Satan fall like lightning. But don't rejoice that the spirits obey you. That's chicken feed. That's nothing. Anybody can do that. Rejoice rather that your names are written in the book of life. And, he says, and I've given you authority to trample on what? Snakes and scorpions. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. So what is it that Jesus is saying? He's saying, when you're praying and something terrible happens in your life, do not assign the terrible things in your life to God. How often we do that? 
How often we even go have, have this kind of conversation with ourselves. See, I, I knew I shouldn't have asked for that new car. Look at what's happened now. God's not happy with me. And we assign to God the work of the devil. The work of the devil is identified in the metaphor of snakes and scorpions, things that, that bite and, and, and have a venomous presence in your life, bringing poison into you and into your relationships. That is not the work of God. And it's people who know their position before the Father, who know that the Father would not give them evil. Can God use evil? Of course he can. Is there a big discussion for us as Christians and for us as pre-Christians to think about in relation to evil in the world and a good God who made it? Of course there is. And it's one of the big conversations that we have at Alpha. It's enormously important that we understand how all of that works. But be sure of this, that the testimony of Jesus is that God is a good father and he doesn't give you evil gifts. If you, though you are evil, give good gifts to your children, God who is good is never gonna give you evil things. What we, what we kind of pick up in the flavor of what it is that Jesus is teaching here is that really what we need to get in our hearts and minds before anything else is that we're children of our Heavenly Father. And that as children, we can have a posture of shameless audacity. We can follow a pattern of prayer that is simple enough for even a child to learn. And we can be persistent in that prayer, asking God, even though we don't know whether it's God's will or not, how could we know? The best that we can do is be children. And so we ask with childlike dependence. It's interesting, isn't it, that the final words of Jesus kind of get us focused in a place that we see Paul going to in his teaching. Let's just look at that. Verse 13, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. When Jesus is giving the, the same kind of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of Matthew, he says, give good gifts to those who ask him. But here, because he wants the disciples to understand the nature and the purpose and the power in prayer, he speaks of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul says this, he says, you've not received a spirit that causes you to fear. You've not received a spirit from God that causes you to to function as a slave. This is something that he speaks about particularly in Romans chapter eight and in Galatians chapter four. He says, no, you've received the spirit of sonship. All the men have to get used to being part of the bride of Christ. All the women have to get used to being sons of God. Because it's not about gender, it's about position. We are in the unique position. It's as if we're the only one who ever existed in all of creation that knows God. We have all of his love and attention lavished upon us and because of the mysterious way in which God's love works, we cannot receive any less love if God has a million children. We have the same amount of love as if we were the only one. And what is it that will empower us to function as children with shameless audacity? What is it that will cause us to remember that we are children of God? And by him, says Paul, you cry, Abba, Father. What is it that will keep us on the track of being children asking our heavenly Father for bread? It's the Spirit. And Paul says this, In Ephesians chapter five, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I was talking to the Lord this morning. I was saying, Lord, it's been a long weekend. Those elders, man. And I just felt tired this morning. Sally brought me a cup of tea in bed. Felt great after that, but... Still a bit tired. What what do we need? We need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We leak the Holy Spirit all the time. We're like a sieve. That's why Paul says, be filled. And it's not about a certain kind of esoteric Christian theology. This is mainline New Testament stuff. We need to be filled with the Spirit. And if a good father, when we come to him, offers us his Spirit in response to us asking for good gifts, it must be the best gift. Surely. So, you know where you are this morning and you know whether that is a longing of your heart and life. The prayer team have been prepared and readied to pray for you, to bless what it is that God is doing in you. We're gonna ask Michael to come and lead us in a final song. And as we do that, even as we're singing, feel free to come forward and to say to the Father, Father, I need the best of all gifts this morning. I need to be filled with your spirit so that I can be remembered that I'm a child of God. And in that remembrance, 
have the shameless audacity of a child who just persists in asking for good gifts. And we're not gonna worry about whether those prayers are selfish or self-centered because the spirit within us is able to make us holy. This is what Paul says. If you live by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And so we fill, we ask God to fill us with his spirit and our prayers will be the prayers that the spirit wants us to pray. Amen? Amen. Isn't it fun? I love talking to you in the mornings. You're all ready to rock and roll, aren't you? So let's, um, let's do this this morning. Let's be open to being filled again with the Spirit. If you've never come to a point of salvation and you never have known the regeneration of the first time that the Spirit fills you because you have, as it were, bowed before the Lordship and the sovereignty of Jesus, if you've never known Him as Savior, then this morning be filled for the first time as you confess your need of Him and come to know Him. But for all the rest of us, let's ask Him to fill us. And let's be audacious and let's be shameless and don't be afraid of what other people think. Who cares? Come on up and as you come, you'll be saying with your body, in your heart, what it is that you desire most from the Father and the prayer team will pray with you. You come.